with you. Let's pray. God, you have given us the sacraments as outward and visible signs of the inward and spiritual grace you have prepared for each and every one of us. We pray as we contemplate those graces and those signs that you would lead us to the joy you have imagined for us before we were born. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning and thanks for coming back, especially if you were here last week. It's amazing that you dared to come back after such really arcane and uh, arcane things. What we talked about last week, really, just to catch you up, was what baptism has meant and what it might start to mean sacramentally. And, and of course, what we talked about last week was um, how Augustine had really identified baptism as washing away original sin. And uh, I sort of mentioned to you there are alternatives to that. What I want to do instead this week, and instead of picking that right back up, is to talk about symbolically what baptism meant in the earliest Christian and Jewish communities and talk about symbolically what it might mean now and then see where that gets us and how you, how you perceive the sacrament in all of its various elements. Does that seem okay? So we often take for granted sort of that, um, that water is really good and, and most of us uh, are, know how to swim, I suspect. I mean, most of you, if you were pushed into a pool, you would be able to not drown. Is that accurate to say? Well, um, <laughs> Karen might be questionable. You know, that, that assumption though is extremely questionable in the ancient world. Uh, and so it's, it's helpful to know that biblically, anytime you see water, it is more than likely a code word for chaos. And just to walk you through that a little bit, in the very beginning, in Genesis 1-1, God begins creating the heaven and the earth, and the face of the earth was void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Okay, so in the very beginning, the earth is really chaotic, basically, and God's going to create order out of it, and there's just water all over the place. Um, water goes on and on. You know, there's this song of Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the flames, you won't be burned. I don't know if you know this. The Hebrew people, they pass through the Sea of Reeds, misinterpreted as the Red Sea. The Sea of Reeds, they come through. When they come through on the other side, there are new people because they've passed through this extreme chaos, quite honestly. Um, so throughout the Hebrew Bible, especially, water means chaos, uncertainty, disorder. It can often mean evil. And in the ancient world, unlike today, children were not raised with the ART method of swimming. Right? They, you didn't take your two-year-old to the swimming structure at the pool. Um, part of the reason water was so chaotic, particularly in the land of Israel, is it was really unpredictable. Think about the rainfall in the desert. Six inches a year, maybe? That's what it's like in San Diego. Uh, however, you needed it, right? Without water, you can't grow crops. And these, these were, in general, agricultural people. The average diet was a two-pound loaf of bread every day. That was 90% of your sustenance, 90%. So without the rain, you got no bread. No bread means you starved. So you, you, you need it, but water in the desert is extremely chaotic. And the other thing that happens in the desert, this happens in San Diego especially, the reason I'm mentioning San Diego, it's on the same latitude as Israel, 
you know, similar climate, similar soil type, decomposed granite in general. Um, there are lots of people who live in a place called La Jolla. Anybody heard of this before? It means like the jewelry box. The, me the, the median home price in La Jolla is at least $2 million, the median home price. And often they're built up on high cliffs that overlook the ocean. Well, here's what happens in that, in that environment. Even if you've got concrete pillars going down 15 feet, if there's, for any reason, several days of rain, that decomposed granite is not viscous. And so the homes literally will slide down the mountain into the, into the ocean. I mean, this happens every year that people with $2 million, $3 million house is sliding down the mountain. Water is chaotic. That's what I'm trying to convince you of. We think of water as life-giving and refreshing and wonderful, but you just need to know that biblically that's not the main symbolic use of water. Most people in the Bible had no idea how to swim. The Sea of Reeds, we don't know where that is, but even if it's very deep, you know, when, when, when it covers over Pharaoh's army and the horses, horses intuitively know how to swim. I don't know if you know this, right? If you throw a horse in a pool, it'll get out. <laughs> Somehow in that story, all the horses drown. Somehow all the people drown, even though they could have ridden their horses to say, do, do, do you understand what I'm saying here, right? Water was scary. In fact, in the ancient world, people thought that if you went underneath water, you were really at the threat of, possession's not the right word, but really you were at the threat of being succumbed by, by evil. So when John the baptizer comes on the scene fully immersing people in water. We don't know whether he did it forward or backwards or they squatted and he put, we don't really know the method, but we know they went all the way under the water. The symbolism was extremely strong. They were standing in the currents of chaos and now they'd been completely submerged. The chaos had run over them. And, and this is the symbolism Paul uses in the New Testament. When you come out, God has delivered you from the chaos you were formerly standing in, ironically, by fully submerging you in it. There were some precursors to what John was doing. I, some of you, furring your brow, we'll get back there. Um, about 200 years before Jesus, there was a, a movement in Judaism that um, decided that religion was not just about what you did at the temple on holy days. Now, now, I want you to know, prior to this 200 BCE or BC, um, if you were Jewish, religion meant for you, you went to the temple on Yom Kippur, or you went to the temple for Passover, or you didn't eat leavened bread for Passover, and that's about what it meant. There really wasn't a daily code of ethics. Religion was all about what you did at the sacred places, not what you did in your home, not how you treated your friends and family. There was a movement that happened that said, we want more than that, particularly when the temple got destroyed because the Babylonians burned it to the ground in 586. And slowly that trickled down where people thought, well, geez, if there's no temple, then does that mean there's no religion too or no God? And, and people resisted that. They said, no, no, there's like, no, there's got to be more than just a temple. So there's this slow integration of what it means to believe in God. And what they decided was that during the day, everybody did things that accumulated impurities on them. Now, this makes sense to us 
particularly if you're living somewhere like a Soviet bloc country and breathing the air. You may not want to participate in polluted air, but by the virtue of where you were born, you breathe in impurities, right? Does this make sense, what I'm saying? So it could just be environmental. But, you know, when the law, the, the, the Jewish law sort of says that menstruation results in impurities, and it does, right? Well, you don't have a lot of choice on that, right? You're, you're just going to be impure some days of the month, like a quarter of it if you're a woman. Um, you know, similarly, uh, um, any kind of emission as a man will make you impure, at least for a day. So there's not a lot of choice on that. You, you know, that's just going to happen to you. Touching dead bodies is going to make you impure. Now, now, you can get by by touching fewer dead bodies, right? Unless you're a butcher, and then that's all you do all day. Or a mortician, right? So, so there's this understanding that touching these things is going to make you impure, and there's remedies for it. The remedy is you, you quarantine yourself from other people so that you don't pass the contagion of impurity that you've participated in on somebody else, which is why if you read a book like The Red Tent, Anybody read The Red Tent by Anita Diamant? Interesting book, right? Women in general spend a week outside of the camp and they do it together so that they don't contaminate any of the men or the, the younger children. Okay? That, and that's probably a likely reality. 200 years before Jesus, though, people started to be concerned not just about breaking these prescribed rules, but they started to be con concerned about moral impurity. So they started to think that you didn't just acquire impurity if you touched a dead body, you started to acquire impurity if you told a lie or if you told a half-truth. This is much how we think of it today, right? Anybody grow up evangelical? I mean, like in the Baptist church, the Methodist church, maybe the Missouri Synod Lutheran church. If you grew up in those places, what I'm saying makes lots and lots of sense to you, which is when we create a moral infraction, it's like a stain on our white garment, a stain that we desperately need washed away, right? Otherwise, we, we're wearing stained clothes in public, and my mother taught me not to do that. She'd be sad if she knew. Uh, anyway, uh, so, so, so this is sort of the thing, and so there was this concern, well, you know, if we do that stuff, how do we get it washed off of ourselves? How do we sort of clean our garments, not just the ones we're wearing, but for the sake of the whole community? Because there's two things going on at the time of Jesus. Individualism, which is about me and my relationship with other people and God, but also me as part of the whole community. Now, we've lost a little bit of that idea today. I just think we just need to be honest about that. But in the ancient world, the idea was a stain on me is a stain on the community. Okay? Now we kind of think a stain on you is a stain on you. And if it's real bad, we'll just cut you out of the cloth. But in, but, in, but in their mind, if you cut somebody out of the cloth, now you had a gaping hole in the garment. Does, does, does that make sense? So, so this becomes a really pro big problem. And the ways that you get absolution for the technical things like touching dead bodies and menstruating, like I said, a quarantine, but there also happen a couple of times throughout the year on these high holy days like Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, that's when you would go and there'd be a heifer killed and the blood would just go everywhere. And they would sort of throw it everywhere. The more important thing on Yom Kippur is that all of the transgressions of the community would be laid on the head of a goat, interestingly enough called the scapegoat, 
who was then driven out, could not be killed, was driven out into exile. They were sort of saying, you get all of our stain, now get out of here, <laughs> so that our stain will leave with you. That's a scapegoat. That's not a word that the Nazis made up. That's a word from the Hebrew Bible. I mean, this is important to hear. Problem is, if you want to do this on a daily basis, and Yom Kippur happens annually, what do you do the under 364 days of the year? Well, I guess you could wait. But if you believe that this was a stain on the garment of the community, the community can't wait 364 days. So 200 years before Jesus, people got the idea that there were ways that you could wash that off. And literally, they decided you could wash it off. So they made these ritual baths that would be down. These are things called mikvahs. Maybe you've heard of them before. A mikvah is not really a bathtub. What you want to think of is water coming in from a particular source, and the source matters, I'll tell you in a second. Water coming in to a round, sort of a round pool, and then there's an exit hole here so that it sort of swirls and goes out. Right? Now, in some places where there's not enough water to constantly refill, water comes in more likely to a rectangular cistern, a holding tank, and does not go out. It was really important to people that the water was living water. Now we hear that and we think, oh, does that mean the Holy Spirit's in it? Living water in the Bible means it came from the sky or it came from a river. It's living because it moves of its own accord. Filling up buckets and dumping it into a pool is not living water biblically. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mike, if you go to a river and scoop it up and pour it in, it came from the same source, so how is it different? Well, biblically it is. I just want you to know that. <laughs> biblically, living water needs to move. And, and interestingly enough, in the early Christian community, there's a document called the Didache, the Didache, this is the teachings of the disciples. If you wanted to be baptized, there's a priority given into where the water comes from. Number one priority is that you're baptized in an active river. Uh, the lowest priority is, again, you're being baptized with water that's, that's been artificially filled. It's okay if a river fills up a pot that you get in. That's almost as good as being in the moving river, although that's number two priority. Isn't this interesting? Weird? What would biblical people think about water that comes out of pipes? Is that living water? It moves seemingly of its own accord. I don't know the answer, right? Do you, do you get what I'm saying, though? I, I, sorry, this is really weird. I'm, I'm probably boring you to tears. Okay, so this was the deal. And you would go down in that mikvah multiple times a day. You know, again, if you had one that was flowing, or if you were by a river, you wouldn't even need the mikvah. You'd jump in the, in the water, you'd say a prayer or two, and you'd come out, and the belief was you'd washed off the, 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 the taint of menstruation or uh, an ejaculation, or you would wash off the taint of telling a lie, or you would wash off the taint of um, having touched a dead body, and you could do it right then. Does it, does it make sense what I'm saying? So people were doing this, and just like our friends in India, you know, anybody ever seen the Ganges River in person? Is it the cleanest looking water in the world? 
I mean, I think it's like full of like nuclear waste and things. Like it's really problematic. But if you're Hindu, the Ganges is absolutely the cleanest water in the world. You could pull up a specimen, you take a little clear glass jar and look at it, and it's like yellow brown. I mean, it's just really gross, right? It's full of industrial pollution, honestly. But it's the cleanest water in the world. The same thing is true of these, of these mikvot or, or mikvahs in, in Judaism. Once they get filled up, if you can't refill them, you just use them till you can refill them. Now, you know that after you've bathed 75 times in the same pool, and that water ain't clean anymore, but spiritually it is. You, you, you're tracking with me here? So this is what's going on in the time of Jesus, is that lots of Jewish people called Pharisees, not Sadducees. Pharisees are people who want religion to matter in their everyday life, not just when they go to the temple. Pharisees are going to these mikvot so that they can have purification of their ritual defilements, but also their moral ones. On the scene in the Bible comes John the Baptist, who maybe was a Pharisee. We don't really know about John. Uh, a lot of people think he belonged to a group of people called the Essenes. The Essenes were an extremely um, orthodox Jewish community because in the, in the Jewish Bible, there's regulations for priests and for regular people. A priest, when they're serving at the altar, has to be celibate during that service. Now, when, they're, when their week's up or their day's up, they go back home, they're married, they have kids, that's fine. But while they're serving at the altar, they're celibate, right? They have to do more washings than anybody else. They have to fast more than anybody else. The Essenes are the group that decided everyone should live as priests every day of their lives. That meant they were completely celibate as a community every day. When you do that, your faith tradition tends to die out within a generation, just so you know. <laughs> You've heard of the Shakers. I think there's two of them left, and, and they are converts. <laughs> they weren't born into the Shaker faith because you just can't be, you see. Um, so, so, so this is what happened. The Essenes are these people who are trying to live with the utmost, absolute, rigorous, spiritual uh, purity like they were priests, but they're even out priesting the priests. A lot of people think John the Baptist was one of those people. I'm not sure why, because lots of other people had these mikvahs, but if you go to the places in Israel where the Essenes lived, like Masada, or down from Masada, you'll find lots of these mikvahs, big, huge ones, up in Masada, which is a mountain where they get about two inches of rain a year. Interestingly enough, they designed an aqueduct along the ridge of the mountain a lip to take the two inches of rain a year and funnel it into a cistern that's like the size of St. Thomas campus. I mean, it's ginormous. So much so that they had more water than some of the rivers and uh, the oases around because they, they cleverly harvested it, right? They got in that same water every day, all of them multiple times. And that's the water they drank. Mm. So, so, so just so you know, this was going on, but then John the Baptist is one of these people, and as far as we know, is the first person in history who comes out, again, a lot of scholars say he came from there, and says, you know, we're going to do this one time. Now, we don't know if John continued to use 
mikvahs. We don't know. But the baptism John was offering was a one-time immersion in living water, the River Jordan, right? And it was as a sign of repentance. And that's how the Gospels call it. So this is a new thing. It's a new thing because it's not every day. It's a one-time rite. It's a new thing because apparently he's doing it not just for Essenes, people who are already living like priests every day. He's doing it for regular old Pharisees, and then he's also doing it for tax collectors and prostitutes. I mean, that's how the Gospels read. John the Baptist is offering baptism to anybody who wants it, whether or not they've proved themselves worthy. This is interesting to think about, right? And then combine that, like I told you, with the symbolism that being submerged under water is not something really desirable when you don't know how to swim, when water is a, is a, is a code speak for chaos. And, and in general, this, I think, is the symbolism that Paul draws on in the New Testament for what baptism means. It, it, it's as if you're going under and you're dying to the chaos you've already been standing in so that God can burst something new. Because while you're standing in, parting chaos and part out, you might think that life is good enough. But the symbolism is a full death to the way you were living so that you can live in a better way. It's this interesting thing. I guess the, the, the quote is something, sacrifices being willing to give up who you are now so that you can be who God intends you to be instead. I mean, that's interesting, right? Um, I, I don't think that means that who we are now is bad. I mean, you just got to think through that. But who, who we, the way that we're wading in waters is not what God intends. God intends us to be completely out of the chaos, not standing half in it and saying it'll be okay. Uh, so that's most likely what baptism meant. Now, I think it's important for us to think then if baptism means repentance, and Jesus was like us in every way, but without sin, why on earth did he want to get baptized? You ever thought about that? I thought about it a lot one time. <laughs> I wrote a 90-page paper on it. At the end of it, I still didn't know uh, why. Um, you know, there's some interesting things to think about. John Wesley, a good Anglican priest, maybe you've heard of him before, a brother of Charles who wrote lots of hymns that we like to sing. Um, John Wesley said that um, when you're ignorant and you do something wrong, it isn't sin, it's ignorance. When you're ignorant and you choose to remain ignorant, it is sinful. Now, that's interesting to think about, right? Because if that's the case, and by the way, I don't want to overdo things here, but if that's the case, I mean... Did Jesus do things wrong out of ignorance? And they weren't sinful. I mean, this is helpful to think about. And I just want to share one story with you on, on that point. Um, there's a story, maybe you know of it, that um, one day Jesus is walking down with his disciples, and there's this woman who's from Syria. She's a Syria-Phoenician woman, which means she's not Jewish. I mean, in today's world, she'd, just, she'd be Muslim, right? And she says, teacher, help me, my daughter is sick. Do you know this story? And Jesus says, he didn't well, he ignores her for a long time. And finally, the disciples are like, this lady is embarrassing us. Could you please answer her? And, and finally, he looks at her and he says, you know, it's not good to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I just want you to know 
that calling a woman a dog is still something that happens linguistically, and it's not in general a nice thing. It's never really been a nice thing, so, so you know, right? So this happens. And the woman says, well, sure, but even dogs get crumbs. And Jesus says, wow, you've got great faith. The way I read it is Jesus was testing the woman, right? I learned Jesus was testing her faith. But, you know, if you, if you do the read I just gave you with John Wesley, Jesus, like us, was taught by his parents and his community who God loved and who God didn't love, right? And here comes one of these people God doesn't love, and he basically says God doesn't love you. And her reply is, God loves us enough that we get crumbs. And, and just, just think about this for a second. What if, in that moment, Jesus realizes, like, what if he learned something? Now, I know this might sound heretical, right? Because he's like us in every way without sin. But, you know, isn't life full of learning for you? Don't you have these moments, right, where you had this extreme thought about somebody and somehow God broke through? I mean, just little moments like this, you know. Significant enough that you could tell them, you know, you could tell the story. Maybe nobody else might even understand it. But, but it was significant enough that it reversed the course of a relationship for you. I mean, I've had, that, I've had those moments. Listen, I've had those moments with lots of people, with women in ministry. I had a teacher who didn't believe in women in ministry. She taught, she was a professor of Old Testament at Gardner-Webb University. Um, her husband would hire babysitters while he was home because watching the kids was women's work. And they both agreed on this stuff, right? And, and this woman who, who knew women could teach but couldn't preach had become a professor because preaching was for men. Well, that woman preached every day we had class. I just want to let you know. And um, at the end, or in fact, in the middle of the semester, I thought, well, golly, I've had lots of male professors who were much less effective than this female professor. In fact, I feel like she's pastored me. So I had this moment against her will where I realized this was a woman in ministry. And if God had called her, then categorically God must be able to call other people. It wasn't easy, though. It took me like nine Nine months to like wrestle with that because I'd grown up that women couldn't do this just like she had. And if I told her, just like I told you now, well, no, you're a woman in ministry, she would have said, no, I'm not because women can't do that. <laughs> I mean, that was the irony of it, right? I, the reason I'm telling you this long story is what if that's a moment for Jesus where that happens? What if Jesus is confronted with somebody's humanity that he didn't think could have fully had it? And in that moment, the way he shows us to escape from sin is he changes. Instead of saying, know the rules of rule and you're out. Well, that story is there to tell you why Jesus maybe was interested in doing this. Because it turns out that biblically repentance doesn't mean that you say, God, I'm so sorry and I'm so ugly inside and, and I'm fallen and I'm worthless. It has nothing to do with that. Repentance in the Bible means four things because there's four different words for it. One is repentance means, it's an archery term, it means that you, sin, by the way, means you miss the mark. So repentance means you adjust your aim and you shoot again. So repentance is the word turn. But it comes from archery, which means you turn your aim to better adjust where you're going. Now, let's just think about that, because there's lots of times we miss the mark in our lives 
and that has nothing to do with our morality. We just weren't looking at the bigger picture. Does this make sense what I'm saying? I mean, if you went to shoot at a target and you missed, and someone said, sinner, you'd probably say, I just missed the target, right? I mean, I don't know about all that sin stuff. Biblically, that's what's going on, right? So, so repentance is when you adjust. That's all it means. Or on a, in a road, it means I'm going one way and I make a turn, and I might have been planning the turn all along, but turning is repentance. That's, that's all it means in Hebrew. That's, that's one of the words. Did Jesus turn in his life? Absolutely. He turned from being a day laborer to being a rabbi. Right? So his, the trajectory of his life changed after baptism. Okay? The next word, and this is a Greek word, um, so there's, Hebrew's got two words, Greek has one, Latin has another one. The, the, the Greek word is actually the word metanoia, which means, so you know metaphysics, right? Metaphysics is like beyond the physical world. We use this thing to describe like spirituality, right? Metaphysics. Meta means above or, above or beyond. Physics means what it means, right? Noia, nous, means mind. So metanoia, metanous, is a way of thinking that's above or beyond the way you used to think. This is the word James Joyce uses, made popular, the word epiphany, right? And epiphany is when you're so used to thinking one way and you have this encounter that's like supernatural. The light bulb goes off, but it can never go back off. I basically described that already with the woman teacher, right? Because once I had that experience, it was either this woman's an anomaly or the whole category I had to begin with is bad, right? Well, either she's just as a good teacher, not a preacher. I had that choice. The other choice I had was, if this woman did it, God can do it with other women and is doing it with other women. And you can't really go back once you've made that move. Do you, you, you get what I mean? It's, it's almost irreversible. Because to reverse it would be denying your experience. Did Jesus have moments of metanoia? Well, I just told you about one he had, Right? A Syrio-Phoenician woman comes up and he says, you're a dog. And at the end he says, you've got great faith. I mean, that's metanoia, right? It's metanoia. If you don't buy that one, Jesus grew up in a society where men didn't touch women. They just didn't. Only privately. You read the Gospel of Luke, lots of women touch Jesus and he touches them. That's metanoia. He decides to break the convention. That's this sort of making sense? So was Jesus different after his baptism metanoia? Yeah, he sure was. Sure was. Interesting to think that you can change your mind on things without having been morally wrong to begin with. Do, do, do you get what I'm saying? Because the truth is, we've all changed our politics, haven't we? I mean, different times in our life, you know? I, I mean, I hope so. Right? I hope we've made changes on, on political decisions because we learned more, right? We learned more, whether it was about water rights or, 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 or fire safety, do you know what I mean, or speed limits. We, 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 we've changed our minds because we've learned things. And we weren't thinking in our earlier position, man, I want to be sinful with this law. I want a law that's going to burn everybody in the world. You, you know what I mean? 
But, but maybe we were in an accident, or our friend was, and we realized, hey, like, we, need, we need better restraints. You know, we need seatbelts or something. We had a metanoia. <laughs> and it wasn't that we were morally wrong before, it just means we learned there was a better way. And we couldn't go back from the better way. Does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? I don't wear a helmet when I ride bicycles, but I had a metanoia moment, and now I wear a helmet. <laughs> It wasn't wrong not to wear a helmet. It's just stupid. Right? <laughs> so, so there we go. Okay, that's the first two. The third one, this is a Latin word, and it's actually the root of the word repentance to begin with. So in Latin, the word here is poena, and it's, it gives us the word penance. Penance, we all get, right? It, by the way, saying 40 Hail Marys is not penance in the, in, in the doctrines of the Roman church. It's not. Penance is where you have broken a relationship, you've hurt somebody, and therefore you've tipped the scales in your advantage, so you have to re-level the scale. Right? And that means penance is if you've stolen something, you pay it back with interest. And that's biblical, by the way. You pay it back with interest. Penance. If you say, yes, I embezzled a million dollars, and I am so sorry, and you keep the money, you have not repented. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And we all know that's right. We all know that's right. We teach our children that too. We actually kind of club them, because when our kids say, Dad, I'm sorry, or Mom, I'm sorry, we say, and you should be, because you did this. You need to prove that you're sorry. Don't ever do it again. You ever say stuff like that as a parent? By the way, that's how we teach adults not to apologize because we don't say apology accepted. Do many of you offer apologies with your words or you just try to show it with your actions? I mean, honestly, we demand our kids show it with their actions right then. Anyway, but, but you, get, you get why. We want to see a man in a life. That's what we want to see, because that's penance. That's poena, right? In the Middle Ages, when people went to the priest for confession, the priest didn't say, say 30, our fathers. The priest said, give the money back. <laughs> and say 30 Our Fathers. <laughs> and that changed to just the Our Fathers as if we'd only sinned against God. But the Bible and Jesus both know we sin against each other. And the way that we fix that is we fix it when we can. The Alcoholics Anonymous is great because I think it's the ninth step says we apologize and make restitution to those we've hurt except when doing so would make things worse for them. Did Jesus do that stuff? Did Jesus do penance? I don't know the answer to that. So the jury's down on that one. Okay. But that is three or four. The last one, and this is another Hebrew word, which is interesting that Hebrew has two words for repentance, even though the Hebrew language has 10,000 words in its entirety. The Greek language has 100,000 words, and it only has one. It's just interesting to think of that a word-poor language has two concepts of repentance. This is the Hebrew word neham, which means a deep grieving that you're vested in a, in a societal structure that is wrong that you can't individually control. I mean, I think that is sort of like this thing, and not everybody buys it when I say it, so I just, I, I don't know how to, how, to, how to pick it carefully. If you don't agree with me, that's okay. But the, the best one I can think of is that, that um, 
you know, as a white man, basically I have more privilege than anybody in the room. Uh, white woman with my education to this day still has less of a chance of being a CEO. I mean, just statistically, right? And even though the pay gap is changing, a white woman with my education probably make 93% or, or lower of what I make, just average. I didn't ask to be born man. I didn't say, Mom, please make me a boy. In fact, my mom wanted a girl. Um, <laughs> I'm really glad I have a girl. But I, but, I, but, I know, but I know this is true. The question is, what, what can I do about it when the whole society is set up that way? Does, do you get what I'm saying? And if the pay gap doesn't appeal to you, think about the gains we've made, many of these we've made. Police officer, firefighter, flight attendant, right? These are gains that were recent for us, recent, because we wanted our daughters to have the same opportunity and dignity as our sons. Think about how nurses only recently became men, right? And when they did, nurses started getting paid more money. But 30 years ago, nurses and teachers made the same wage. Do, do you kind of know what I mean here? Think about how there's men's sizes and there's women's sizes. And women's sizes are smaller because women shouldn't be as big, even though <laughs> in some ways they're similar sizes. We've just made the number smaller for some reason because that's, that's cute. Think about how we tell our sons, girls can do most things boys can do. We tell our daughter, Boys can do most things girls can do. Drives our son crazy, makes him so mad. Okay. Um, now, what I'm trying to say is not that there's a conspiracy of evil, but, but quite frankly, quite frankly, when I go to the Middle East, I don't worry that a man's going to touch my bottom. I don't. My wife would never go to the Middle East by herself because she worries about that. Rightly so, because it will happen to you. Anybody lived in the Middle East before? Or Italy, too. Uh, thank you. Or, or Sicily or Spain, yeah. right? I, or, or Greece. This, this happens places. It does, right? And it happens to women more than happens to men in these places. Now, listen, I've been to Egypt, and I had people touch my rear end, and I thought, I don't know why you want to do that, <laughs> which was just confusing for me, but would have been much more threatening for my, for my spouse. Do you, do you, do you kind of know what I'm talking about? And, and if you still don't, if you've had daughters or nieces, are you more worried about them driving alone at night than your sons, than your sons or your nephews? Because we live in a world where we have to worry like that, you know? I could say the same thing about skin color or religion or age, and I don't just mean about young age, right? It's amazing. People look at me when I go out with my son and they're like, you're his brother? No. Well, how old were you when he was born? 21. <laughs> um, but, but clearly, I, you know, I don't look old enough or that's too young to have a child. You, you, you felt that before, but you sit on the other age, right? Anymore now, people are not putting the year they receive their degree because they'll be discriminated against. You know, you got your master's degree in 1984. I'm not hiring you. That means you're at least 60 years old. You, 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 you know what I mean? That word's called ageism. And it goes both ways, young and old. And, and I think the truth is, um, we can know it's wrong and unfair, but how are you going to take that system down on your own? Are you going to go to a respective, prospective employer and say, you better not discriminate against me because of my age? Good luck getting a call back there, 
right? You know? And once they hire you, maybe you can do that. But ahead of being hired, good luck. Did Jesus know that there were forces greater than himself at work in the world that were wrong? Did he grieve that they existed? And did he hope that they would go away? I would tell you that's the gospel in its entirety. I mean, my belief is that's the whole gospel. So Jesus was baptized for the sake of repentance. At least he meets three out of the four criteria. And that's still the reason we do it today. And part of what we did last week was talk about original sin. And, and I've tried to create some space on that because, again, separating us out from, from, from wretchedness and being unworthy and unliked by God, none of that's required in order to repent. In fact, knowing that God wants more for you than you're living, knowing that God wants more for others than how we're living, is the whole reason to repent to begin with. Not so that we can earn something we don't have, but so that we can live into something God already has for us. Well, I think anyway, you know, if we think about it the other way, then our baptism might not be good enough to make God happy in the first place. But if God's already happy, if God's already happy, then baptism is a way that we further enter in to God's happiness. And baptism isn't something God needs us to do. It's something that we need to do. Does that make sense a little bit? Now, when I talk to our little kids about it here at school, the whole framework for what we do in church for them, and I think this is right as the Episcopal Church, because we have these vocabulary words that are just abstruse. I mean, you can't even use them in a Scrabble game because they're too long. And, and this is really helpful to think about. At home, you drink out of a mug or a cup, right? We don't drink out of ordinary stuff in church. We drink out of a chalice. I doubt you have a chalice at your house. You might have a wine goblet, but I doubt you have a chalice. At home, we eat off ordinary things called plates. Not in church, no, no, we eat off a patent. At home, we put salad dressing in salad dressing containers. Not at church. We have cruets. Now, I know we might use the word cruet at home. That's about the only one. Do you have flagons at your house? We have flagons here. Do you have pixes at your house? No, you've got Tupperware. We have pixes. <laughs> I mean, really, this is good stuff, isn't it? I don't wear a poncho. I wear a chasuble. You better not have a chasuble at your house. <laughs> I don't wear a scarf, I wear a stole, and I don't wear a dress, I wear an alb. And I don't even wear a girdle, I wear a banded cincture. <laughs> this is the stuff of church. We have our own vocabulary word for everything in church to mark that it's not ordinary. Church is extraordinary. I mean, that's it. When I talk to kids about the Eucharist, do they have bread at home? Yes, it's much better than the bread we eat here. Let's be honest. Do they have... Well, that's really come up. It's come up. Our bread's come up. Thank you. I'm really referring to the wafers, although you should know there's people that say, can I get one of those wafers instead of that bread? Suit yourself, I guess. Uh, and then there's that wine, right? There's that wine, which has come up. I'll tell you, it's come up a little bit here. It used to be gallo. It came in like 
the two-gallon bottle. You, when wine comes in a two-gallon bottle, that's just a note, Episcopalians. Leave that one on the shelf, right? Or when it comes in a cardboard box, in general, in general, um, you, you, want, you, you want something different. So, so we have that at home, right? And what we drink here may not even be good as what we drink at home. So what do we tell kids? We say, think about what wine and bread does at home, right? It gives you energy. It nourishes your body. And even though you don't drink wine back in the time of Jesus, 90% of their diet was bread, and the other 10% came from wine or the occasional olive or on a feast day some meat. So wine was pretty important on a daily basis, not on a weekly basis and not as a sip. I mean, this, this had, you know, all kinds of sugars and all of that in it that you needed to work. So that stuff gives us energy for our body. So what we do in church is we say, God, take ordinary stuff and make it do extraordinary stuff. Nourish our spirits just like you nourish our bodies. It's pretty extraordinary, right? Because avocados don't nourish my spirit, even though I think they're great. You know, they don't nourish my spirit. They just nourish my body. All right, so the belief is we take ordinary stuff and God does extraordinary stuff with it. So what about water? I mean, we're sort of telling the same thing, right? And particularly because we're in Texas, what do we do with water? We, in general, I think we do three things with it. I come up with another one, and, and this will help me figure out how to explain it to kids, you know. But one thing we do with water is we drink it because, frankly, we need, it to be, we need water more than anything to be hydrated, to move, to close our eyes right, to breathe more deeply, to flush out any toxins that are in our body, we need to go to drink it. So one thing we're going to say is, God, we know you do that stuff to our bodies with this water, so how about some hydration for ministry? How about when we come to the font, whether we're getting baptized or remembering our baptism with that little holy water font, you know, that's there so you can remember your baptism, that you can remember that Remember, in participating, God actively hydrating your spirit, which includes flushing out toxins in your body, right? Flushing out toxins in your spirit. Anybody need that? I mean, I need that more than, the, more than I'm doing it. I'll just let you know, right? Another thing we use water for, I think, in Houston, and I do this, uh, when you hear Mike Brady's sermon this morning, he's going to talk about people who run in the morning. He didn't know why you do it. Um, I did that this morning, and then I jump in my pool, which is not as cool as I'd like, but honestly, because it helps me cool down really fast. I think many of us who have pools or go to community pools, in the summer, that's the importance, right, is just to cool off and be refreshed. So if God can do that with phys physically with water, you ever need refreshment? for ministry in your spirit. This is one of those things we do when we remember God, I need refreshment from you. I need refreshment from your Holy Spirit. That would be extraordinary if you could refresh my spirit for ministry and to practice love with the people I know. And then I think the last thing you should tell people for, you know, and, and in Houston, I've really converted to two showers a day. Because <laughs> when I walk my dog, uh, I need a shower after that, which is really strange, but um, in California, I did not need that, but it's okay. Here we are. Uh, we need it, honestly, to remove dirt and build up, you know? We, we need it so that we can be clean, not just so that we can pre be presentable, right, but so that we don't stink and have to smell our own stink. And, uh, so that we, it's another way of being refreshed, right? So, so we're going to say, God, could you please wash off anything that is separating me from the love and joy I know that you intend for me to have. That could be sin, but it sure could be guilt. 
guilt and sin aren't always the same thing, you know? I didn't really figure that out until I had children. Because when you dial back, you know, and you think, oh man, three years ago, I bought the red uniform. And if I bought the blue, if I just bought that blue uniform, everything would have been different. You ever had thoughts like that? Maybe they weren't about uniforms. Maybe they were about the school you picked to send your kid to, right? Or, or maybe they were about that time where you let the kid have the pizza instead of having the cauliflower. And if you just made them have that cauliflower and they were two, you know that they would not have uh, gone down the road of whatever dietary-wise and ended up in jail. <laughs> you ever have those moments as parents? They weren't moral failings. You were doing the best you could, but you come back and are sometimes haunted by these choices that you say, I could have made that different. Well, it doesn't even matter if you're a parent. If you're married to somebody or if you're friends with somebody, you've had moments where you say, if only I'd just done this thing, right? Wasn't necessarily sinful, but you know, the worry of that sure does separate you from the joy that God intends for you to have. There's a difference between learning a lesson from something that you wish you'd done differently and beating yourself up. People like me, I beat myself up from things I didn't do right instead of learning from them and moving forward. This is another reason why we have the right of confession or reconciliation, is so that we can say, God, the water's not working. <laughs> the water's not working. I still feel guilty. Please do something different. I did one this week. It was pretty neat. Um, so this is what I tell kids that we do, and in some ways, I, I, you know, I, would, I would ask you to think about, does water and baptismal water represent something different for you guys than those things? Or put another way, and maybe we just go bigger. How does baptism sacramental for you? How does it reveal to you the inward and spiritual grace through the outward and physical representation? When you see a baptism that's meaningful, or when you think about your own, what meaning does it have for you? What did it do for you spiritually or mentally or physically? That was a new way of being. Yeah. Baptism is following Jesus' example, which is why we're baptized. And in case you're wondering why I spent so much time talking about why would Jesus want to be baptized, it was to answer that question. Right? This is a weird thing, you know, we figure out as parents. If we have extreme issues with our self-image, you know, if we're constantly worried that we're ugly or we're too fat or we're too whatever, and we have our kids and we say, I don't want them to have that, but we still have it, what do you think they're going to learn? <laughs> from us saying, don't worry about how you look, sweetie, or from us constantly being worried about how we look? <laughs> what they they're going to learn that, aren't they? They're going to learn, Mama hated her body, and I should hate mine too, 
right? It's this weird thing about teaching our kids. The best way we can teach them is to be the people we want them to be. Not to tell them to be the people we want them to be, but to be those people, right? To be people that are not afraid to take risks, to be people who are comfortable in our own skin. And it's this catch-22, because until you do that, your talking doesn't really, really work, and we all know that. I think it's the same thing with Jesus. If Jesus got in the water to show us to get in the water, but it didn't mean anything else to him, it can't mean anything else to us, right? Jesus had to have good reasons to get in that water, mostly to change the trajectory of his life, right? Which is, I think, the case I'm trying to make, which is, which is that's how we follow Jesus. We change the trajectory of our lives when we come out. I think, it's, I think you nailed it, though. I think it's exactly the reason we do it. <laughs> yeah, you, I did, too. But the Baptist church never told me why Jesus wanted to do it. How old were you when you picked? I was 10. I was an adult. We believe in adult baptism, and I said this last week, you know. I mean, a, 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 as a male, your frontal lobe isn't all the way formed until you're 24 years old. So I had my 10-year-old understanding of Jesus that I was committing to for the rest of my life, and I think that's appropriate. But I wasn't an adult. We just, we can't pretend that, you, you know. But I mean, we, we, we choose to do infants, so I mean, that's just, you know, there is no decision for Yeah, which is why we have confirmation. And, and if you were here last week, I told you the reason, and I learned this from the Methodist Church, why we do infants, I think. We, we do the infants because they don't have a choice. Right. And that's the whole point. You don't have a choice about God's grace. It's going to enshroud you whether you want it or not. <laughs> I'd like to have confirmation after being baptized at nine, ten years later, to understand. Yeah, probably what happened to you, same thing happened to me. You were dedicated when you were born. Dedicated. You dedicate your babies to the Lord. Right, because baptism is for adults. You got your adult baptism at nine, and then there's nothing for you again. Yeah, but there's no right. There's no right. And this is actually the problem. We'll talk about this when we get to confirmation. This is the problem in the Episcopal Church with confirming an 11-year-old. I mean, I think it's nice, but then there's nothing for them the rest of their whole life except for reconfirmation. Of course, I don't mean that you should only confirm people when they're 30. But this is a sticky issue, right? Because the thing is, once you do your last right, you did it. <laughs> and that means you've got 60, 70 years with no more rights. Marriage, maybe. Maybe. And what do you do as an adult? And this, by the way, this is where Curcio came from. Does anybody know about Curcio? Curcio at this moment came from the Roman church. It's in the Episcopal church, too. You go on this weekend of like spiritual renewal because the truth is lots of people will confirm when they're 11 or 12, and then... Eh, they did their right, and they, the church didn't have anything for him, right? So they might have gone to church, they may not have, and Curcio was this opportunity to come back as adults and say, the church isn't done with you, there's something else we can do. We can go on this big, meaningful retreat, and then we can live forward from that. I mean, that was the whole goal of Curcio, which I think is still around, although depending which diocese you go, it's, it's up or down, or it's floundering, or, or it is... Yeah. Yeah, the one I went on wasn't short. <laughs> You think I'm a long-winded speaker? Good Lord. <laughs> Just the first day. Well, and there's part, every rite has its own rituals. I mean, right? So, so that's the thing. But, but I mean, now that's one of these, these issues with baptism. And in some ways, I think it's, it's okay to say we do infants as long as we have something for adults. Yeah. But I think you're, I think you're on on that. Public 
since 1976. Yeah. Yeah, and I almost I almost think that the right is more for the people observing than the, the person participating, don't you? Especially the infant. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's the whole trajectory of, of, of growing up, isn't it? Right? I mean, even in our early thirties we knew less than we know in our in our later thirties. And in our 60s, we sure know more than we knew in our 50s, right? And, and, and that's advantageous then to live in that community. But you know, you, if you've noticed, we don't have very many baptisms at 8 o'clock here. I think I've done one in two years. I've done plenty at 10.30, like we do those. But on baptismal days, we'd say our covenant of both services, right? Because it's, it's really about us covenanting together. I think it's nice when you have this image. And going back last week, the, the neat thing about the infant baptism, right, is that we don't have any problem looking at an infant and saying, there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, you represent joy and grace, even if you're an ugly baby. Like, and, and let's not lie, there's ugly babies out there. But, um, but they're sweet and tender, you know, and, and God loves ugly babies too, and it's sweet, right? But when we look at adults, oh, we don't look at adults like that. We say, oh, how sweet you're coming to the font, but I know you at work, you know? We have all this junk we put on adults. And in some ways, I think that's the advantage of baptizing an infant. In that one moment, we're like, oh, God loves you utterly. And the reminder is when we say the covenant is God loves you utterly, and you utterly, and you utterly, and you utterly, and I'd better do that too, right? Those nice feelings I had toward that infant, I'm supposed to have toward everybody in and out of the room. And I think that's an, you know, I really think that's an advantage, right? It's super easy to know God loves the baby. Super easy. The work is that God loves people who are flawed, and God loves my loves me. That's where the work is. Well, I think a lot about baptism is um, the parents believing that that's important to, to have the infant join the church. I mean, to be part of a body bigger than the little small family. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the fact my parents had me baptized, and then and then they followed through. Well, that's, that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking back to my daughter's baptism, and that's when she joined the church. And that was a special moment. Yeah. Yeah, moment of joining the church. You know, and and, and I'm going to out myself. When people say, what do I need to be baptized at your church? I say, you need to show up. <laughs> it's happened once that they didn't. I don't know if you were here last year. The time had changed, and, and I was, got to the point in the service. You here? <laughs> well, we'll just say our covenant anyway. You know, I mean, that was, they didn't come. They didn't come. You know, but... Um, but there was, a, there was a day, right, and I think we always have to think about this, right? People are so worried about giving grace away too easily, you know. How could you baptize somebody just because they ask, you know, because they may not fully understand it, as if I do. But how could you not? 
Well, that's kind of the, that's kind of where I'm erring, right? Honestly, is that if people want to be baptized, that's a really good thing, and to make it difficult doesn't seem right. I also, and I just, I just want you to know, coming backward to marriage, and I don't, I don't want to overdo this, you know, but when people want the church involved in their marriage for any reason, I sure want to say yes before I say no. You, you, you know what I mean? Because you don't have to do that anymore. You can get anybody you want to get a one-day ordination certificate, or you can go to Justice of the Peace. So when people ask you to do a wedding... You know, as long as it's not an abominable union, like, like it's just full of fraught with terror and there's nothing you can bless in the relationship, as long as it's not that one, well, well I think the church should want to do it, you know? And I get that we want, to, we want to help the relationship, but to make people jump through hoops to get married just seems like the opposite of how we should do it, right? Well, I'll do it if you convert to the Episcopal faith by attending a 40-hour newcomer class they may do that. They may do it. You going to see them after that? I, don't, I mean, I don't know. Only if they're masochists, right? <laughs> I just wonder about baptism, too. I've got, and, and it's nothing wrong. I think it's actually important because I understand and, it's, and, and it works. There's a colleague of mine in the diocese who I think advertised on next door or maybe their church sign, baptisms, baptisms next week, come to a meeting Sunday morning or something, Saturday morning. And I guess six people came, and the priest said, you know, I'm happy to do it. We're just going to meet for six hours of baptismal instruction, and then, and then I'm happy to do the baptism. And they all did it. <laughs> I don't know what you talk about for six hours. Um, I, I've pretty much exhausted everything I know here in, 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 in 60 minutes and talked way past it, you know. But, but they did, and, and I think most of them are still, are still with the church, which is a great thing, you know. I think it's a great thing. Everybody does this differently, but you know, again, I, I, it seems to me like this is something we want to be on the side of, of offering to the world, right? This is a sign that God loves you and that we want to support you. I mean, you shouldn't have to earn that, should you? I think we learn the thing is about it as adults, and this is interesting about infant baptism and being baptized at 10. We spend the rest of our lives going back to that and thinking, what does it mean for me now? You know, when I was 10, it meant I got to go to Long John Silver's and, and have dinner after that. It meant I got to have communion in the service because prior to that, I didn't get to do it. It meant my parents were really happy with me, you know, for a long time. It, it meant that in some ways, I felt like I'd checked another box in the face so that God was less likely to hate me. That's honestly what it meant for me at 10, you know. It's meant a lot more to me as I've grown up revisiting what it can continue to mean for me now, you know? I think all things that are worth thinking about are like that. They mean more now to us than they meant at the time. Don't you? My wedding vows mean a lot more to me now, 13 years in, than they meant when I said them. Because I appreciate the complexity of, of what I promised, you know, all the more. Same thing with being a dad. It means a lot more to me now than when it first, if it first happened, it meant a lot, you know, through my through the rain for a loop, right? But <laughs> 16 years in, it means a lot more now. Do you know what I mean? I think that's why we call these things sacraments. Because different little things mean more to different people as we go through. But the church has said in general, people find these things, these things, not at the exclusion of all others, but these things 
are sort of the basis that most people come back to over and over and over again in their lives, and, and that's why it's worth calling them sacramental. I'm positive that's what we do with the Bible, because I've read books not in the Bible that meant more to me than books that are in the Bible. You know? You probably have too. Whether it was To Kill a Mockingbird or, or the Bhagavad Gita, you read something and you thought, wow, that's great. And then you read Leviticus and you thought, after chapter one, I'm going to move on to Deuteronomy. Um, <laughs> and then you quickly moved on from that one too, right? But those books from the Bible, I think the reason is not because they're better than any of the books, because we've agreed. You can come back to these ones, you know? To Kill a Mockingbird doesn't work for everybody, but in general, these ones work for a lot of people. And so we come back to them over and over and over again, right? And, and I think that's the same with the others. Okay, well, next time we'll talk about confirmation. Thanks for being here, and, and see you next week.